place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening in. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, here, today, today, here, we're going to be taking a relaxing break after the festive season. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas time. Of course, you've all read the title. You all know what I'm going to be referring to here. Together we're going to sit back, pick up some vinyl, and then kick back with some of the best music ever recorded, according to this podcast anyway. And what could be better than listening to the music of Paul McCartney with a barely music literate initiate such as myself? Yes, this is going to be another episode of our Listen With Sam side series where, you guessed it, we're going to be going back over well-trodden ground and revisiting the Paul McCartney oeuvre. You know, we're going to go back over albums that we've already covered before, see whether opinions have changed, have grown, whether I've learned new information, and it's also just a great excuse to listen to this music. Though, rather than just talking about it, we're going to listen to the music with me talking over the top of it. Last episode, we did Wings at the Speed of Sound, and I was originally planning on doing Denny Lane's solo album Holidays next, but I just covered a bunch of the 77-78 era recordings on our recent Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode. If you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. So I thought it would be best for us to press on with the proper chronology and return to jolly old London town. As before, I'm not really doing the whole Cliff Notes version of the backstory to this album. I know most of you know all about it already, and if you don't, I would urge you again to go back to the original episode and just learn about it that way. You know the story. They record one half in the Caribbean, Jimmy and Joe leave the band, they record the other half back in the UK. They call it London Town. The front cover's dim, the rear cover is bright. You know, it's It's all very simple stuff. But yeah. One thing I did want to point out just before we did start this episode, London is a city, not a town, Paul. I don't know how you got that wrong for so long. But yeah, anyway, now that that important bit of info is out of the way, let's crack on with the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news for today, folks? Well, first of all, we've had Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Crimble, Merry Crimbo. I hope you had a happy Hanukkah and a crazy Kwanzaa and all that jazz. Um, Of course, around this time, it has meant that McCartney 3 has turned one year old. I can't believe so much time has passed already. McCartney 3 was a huge boost for the podcast as well. It got us many new listeners because obviously McCartney was in the media massively. And not only that, let me just take a few seconds to say that I still love that album. It's still possibly one of the best of the new McCartney era. And it's proof that you can teach an old dog new tricks. I probably listen to it now more than I ever did before when it first came out. Yeah, I still listen to it on the reg as well as McCartney 3 Imagined or McCartney 3 Reimagined, however you want to call it. But so many songs from that album are classics to me. 
and whilst Egypt Station was the first McCartney album that I ever bought and listened to whilst I was doing this podcast, I'd say the the McCartney album from my era is currently McCartney 3. Also, go and check out Andrew Dixon's YouTube channel. He's done a wonderful video on the topic of McCartney 3 turning a year old. Obviously, he was on an episode not too long ago. Go listen to that as well. But yeah, go check out his content. It's always tip-top. Also, in podcast news, I am the latest guest in the last three episodes of the Another Kind of Mind podcast. Yes, you know that I've had Phoebe and the other gals from the Another Kind of Mind podcast. And yeah, I've managed to return the favour to Phoebe here as we cover two Beatle biographical films, or biopics, however you want to call them. We do one episode on a Paul McCartney biopic, or typically a Linda McCartney biopic, and then we do another episode on a John and Yoko biopic, with episode three being a conversation and general uh, back and forth about the two, you know, compare and contrast, that kind of thing. They were all released on Christmas Day. I'm sure many of you have already listened to them right now. I can tell that is the case, because... This show has had a lot of downloads since that has happened. It's been a wonderful bit of advertisement for the podcast in that sense. So massive thanks to Phoebe for that. And I only hope in the future we get to cover more Beatles biopics. Like maybe we'll do Lennon Naked or Nowhere Boy or Backbeat. You know, the sky's the limit there. And, you know, I I just have so much fun talking with her. We have a real rapport and I'm glad so many people have seen that. Uh, So, yeah, go and check out the latest three episodes of the Another Kind of Mind podcast for some bonus Paul or Nothing content, I guess you could say. Also, I had a really cool shout-out on the latest episode of the Untitled Beatles podcast, one of my very favourite Beatles podcasts out there as well. I really love those guys. They are just so darn musical. I love the piano they play on every episode, and their reference game is out of control. It's a really well-edited podcast as well, actually. I really cannot say anything bad about it. I just love the two guys. I love their banter and rapport. And they were very kind enough to give me a shout-out, so I thought I'd do the same again, folks. Go and listen to the Untitled Beatles podcast. It really is one of the best out there. In actual news, uh, the only thing I could really find this week is that Heather Mills has gotten remarried. Not much to say on that. Uh... Good luck to Heather. You know, she's not a bad person. She's not evil. She was married to Paul. They got divorced. You know, she doesn't deserve hate, you know, in the same way that Yoko seems to receive a lot of hate. You know, they broke up. They got divorced. They had a kid together. They've all kind of moved on. I know Heather gets very frustrated about people only ever seeming to ask her about Paul in interviews and that kind of thing. So personally, I'm glad to see that she's moved on. And that's it. Uh, with that, the news is over and it's time to get into the plugs. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love to hear your Paul McCartney stories, your Paul McCartney opinions, whether you just want to say hi to me on the show, whether you want to talk about a review, an upcoming project, whether there's something uh, in the show that you want to address. You know, maybe you've met Paul, maybe you've seen one of his shows, maybe you have a piece of trivia or a factoid that you'd like to chuck my way. I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show and today I have an email from one of our Patreon patrons and regular correspondents Richard Campbell who writes Hi Sam, 
As always, your focus on the music comes as a relief after so many podcasts that treat the fabs as if they are onions to be peeled away. Not to knock those podcasts, but yours reminds oneself that the Beatles actually got famous because they wrote songs, and that's always a good thing. Okay, on to girls' school. Never heard it back in the day. Mull of Kintyre heard it 11 billion times. Naturally, being into punk, etc. then, I hated it. I quite love it now. I think there's a fair bit of hypocrisy around it. I think a lot of people who dissed it then would easily have been caught in the pub singing There'll Always Be in England, or And She Moved Through the Fair, or Raglan Road. It's because it was Paul, i.e. the lightweight at the height of punk, that he got so much flack. I couldn't tell you why it didn't go to number one in Canada, as I heard it so much back then, uh, I just assumed it had. And besides, Paul plays it in Canada every time he comes here. I saw him here in Toronto with a local pipe band, and it was gorgeous. And if a song in Canada is clocking in at number 44, it's not like it's a dog or anything. I bet if you recorded a song and it got to number 44, you'd be amazed and delighted. Especially a ballad extolling the virtues of an island off the coast of Scotland written in the style of a traditional ballad. Buddy, you'd be lucky. You know, Paul wasn't in the top with Donna Summer and the Bee Gees that year, but hey, neither were The Clash. As for girls' school, the fact that it got more airplay and higher in the charts in Canada really is news to my ears. I never heard it until I started listening to other Beatles podcasts. So, over 40 years later, uh, perhaps it just got past me, but the whole thing is off because I was just coming off a year of being a DJ at my uni radio station, so I was listening to music much more attentively, as I also did when I was working in record shops. Very confusing. Anyway, as to its political correctness, it reminds me of the Stones' Live With Me. Ooh, so scandalous. Also, I love Backwards Traveller. Cheers, Sam. Richard Campbell. P.S. I did love your appearances on Another Kind of Mind. It took me to the films themselves. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Wasn't I'm Just a Sentimental Turd on Kisses on the Bottom, by the way? (laughs) That was very funny. Thank you for that one, Richard. Always love to hear from your correspondence. Love, love, love to hear from you again soon. Uh, just just so you know, folks, uh, the, the, the phrase, I'm just a sentimental turd, is uh, a line delivered by the actor playing Paul McCartney in the Linda McCartney biopic. And yeah, me and Phoebe definitely got a lot of comedy mileage out of that one. Um, yeah. Um, I'm not surprised that you hadn't really heard of girls' school, though, dude, because, you know, it it's just not really a big song. Uh, I guess you'd have to be in the right circles to have heard it, be listening to the right radio stations. Maybe you were just different ones than you were listening to. Maybe, though, I'm underestimating how popular a song at number 44 would have been around, you know, 40, 50 years ago, because... I barely know what's in the top 10 now because of the, you know, mass media saturation that we had. But, you know, maybe things that were in the top 20, top 40, top 50 were, you know, comparatively a lot more popular. So maybe it is very strange that you didn't hear it. But, um, yeah, you are right, though. (laughs) If I'd have written a song and it got to number 44, I would be very pleased with that indeed. You know, any validation is always welcome. But again, thank you so much for writing in there, Richard. Always great to hear from you. Hope you enjoyed this episode as well. Folks, if you want to be like Richard, please drop us an email at pubcardipod at gmail.com. We'll get a little dialogue going. How about that? 
For more contact, for more daily updates, follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or Nothing written content, you can check out our sister blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. You can check out the latest episodes of our sideshow, Macca in Your Attic, on our YouTube page, of course, as well. It's where me and a guest go through their attic and dust off five interesting, sentimental, rare, valuable pieces of their McCartney and Beatles memorabilia, as well as having our own little digressional chats, as per the format here. And the latest guest to appear on the show, oddly enough, is someone very important to my heart. Probably the most uh, significant person in Beatles podcasting ever. A real titan. Uh, Someone who I know many of you could not do without. Yeah, it's me. (laughs) For the 25th episode, I managed to be the guest on my own show. Thanks to the wonderful hosting work of Tom Hanyadi from the Two Legs podcast. My nemesis, one of my best friends in this game Uh, thank you so much to Tom for coming on to that and yeah if you want to go and check out some of my Paul McCartney memorabilia items probably all of which I've spoken about on the show previously you can go check that out on our YouTube page and if you've done all of that and you want to help out the show if you want to give a little something back maybe in a way that takes less than 60 seconds maybe you could leave us a quick review on whatever platform you're listening to the show on whether it's leaving a bunch of stars whether it's leaving a like or a thumbs up maybe even a complimentary little comment everything goes towards the algorithms and give them the show that little boost it's always greatly appreciated i always love reading your itunes reviews as well uh, whether they are good or bad they are always very much appreciated. I do like to you know, read a bit of criticism every now and then, and I always do try and take it to heart. Yeah, if you want to have your say, please leave us a review, however you can. And finally, folks, if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to help expand the scope of the show, help get us new equipment, get new product to review, help me cheekily afford time off work, or maybe you just want to thank me for the show that I've been doing, you know, you just really, really like it, you want to throw a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month, then please consider joining our Patreon family, where you can support independent content creators such as myself. Now, it is not just a a fund, though, you do get your money's worth, you get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing, you get instant access to all episodes of Macket in Your Attic as soon as they are recorded. They, they go straight up on the feed. You get instant access to the Paul and I think video feed. If there are any podcasts that I record with a guest, it'll be done on Zoom. The moment they are recorded, they go straight on the Patreon page as well. You get access to all of the scripts that I use for the show. I've been posting my way through them, as well as lost and bonus episodes of the podcast that will never be released on this feed. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, or maybe you just want to support the show, please consider joining our Patreon family. A family including people such as Mr. D. Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, who we heard from earlier, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P., Roderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B., Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Sharon McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia L., Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. And now, folks, now that is all 
out of the way, it is time for us to grab our vinyl copies of London Town, pop them into our record players, grab a doobie, grab a drink, grab whatever you want. You don't have to be inebriated if that is your choice. If you are sober, very good for you. But yeah, it's time to relax, folks. It's time to go all the way back to 1978. Wings have come off a gargantuan world tour. They've had a couple of hit singles the world over. We've had Mulligan Tire here in the UK. City Love Songs was massive over in the US. Speed of Sound wasn't exactly the album to set the world on fire, but it did have some very strong songs on it. You know, people are still reeling from Band on the Run and Venus and Mars anyway. So there still is some goodwill towards Wings at this point, but things are teetering on the edge at this moment. Things aren't necessarily certain and set in stone. So let's try and put ourselves into that mindset and dig into London Town. And we are off once again with the title track of London Town, aka London Town. And right away, you can just tell that this is not the most bombastic of McCartney intros ever, is it? I mean, normally Paul's pretty darn adept at choosing the best songs to open his albums, but here, as far as I'm concerned, this is just not amongst the best material on the album by quite a measure. Though, what I do like about this song is that it explains to the audience in as short an amount of time as possible that this is really going to be a backload adventure. I think what irks me most about this song, though, is less of about the fact that I think it's a little on the rubbish side, more so that it's just the same kind of slow, ballady type of opener that we got on the last album. And I really think that this was a wasted opportunity to come back with a bang. I mean, thank God Back to the Egg remedied this when it did, but I still wish this opened with more immediacy and energy. Anyway, onto some more positives. When I was listening to this album over the Christmas break, the first thing that stood out to me was the strength of the melody, particularly that little piano line at the start. You know, as we've discussed in the latest Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, we know that McCartney was overflowing with little melodies in this period, and this is one of my favourites. You know, it's frighteningly simple for how catchy it is, and it is something that I will catch myself tooting or humming along to long after I've listened to the album. And, you know, I get its inclusion as the opening song here, as it is classic Paul to some degree, like it does give you that same kind of, oh, we're back in safe, familiar territory. But it really needs to be in service of a much stronger lyric. The other standout element here, of course, and and it's probably another reason why it was chosen as the opening song, is the flawless Wings three-part harmonies. As we know, the band is now back down to the classic threesome of Paul, Denny and Linda, and what better way to let the audience know that nothing's really going to change and they're still going to get the same quality of music than by starting off with their, well, you know, one of their strongest three-part vocals ever. But yeah, it is those intricate silly love songs, but arguably this is just some of the straight-up best singing they ever did. And it really elevates the drab and dour atmosphere of the, of the song and implies a certain magical realism and hopefulness because they, they, they just sound angelic here. But let's get down to the real meat and potatoes of this song, folks, before it comes to a close. It's just a downer, isn't it? I mean, let's just forget about the fact that this is the opening track, but this just shouldn't really be on the album at all. Like, 
I get that the band's in turmoil and the return from the Caribbean would hardly have been a roaring fun time, but Paul and Linda have just had little James, and I would have thought that they would have been full of joy and excitement and zhuzh and, you know, motivation. Maybe it's like postnatal depression or exhaustion or whatever, but I'm just at a loss as to why this song was written and performed this way. I mean, it's just a slog, isn't it? Like, I'm not even saying that I don't enjoy the idea of the lyrics to London Town either. You know, there's a very solid idea here with the cinematic structured series of vignettes detailing the lives of these ordinary people throughout the capital. And, and the silver rain coming down is a great visual. It's very evocative. But it's just, you know, to quote Paul, a bit of a drag. And, you know, this idea of Paul struggling to communicate with regular folk would have been done much better with a greater zest and zeal several years later with Average Person from Pipes of Peace. So I can't help but feel that this song is almost entirely pointless now. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. This one has just been one that I've never resonated with. I've never liked it. I don't think I ever will. I'm really sorry, folks. And again, we continue with the underwhelming side one of this album with Cafe on the Left Bank. And we really don't need to get too far into this song to understand what Paul wanted for this song. You know, an energetic, quick-paced rocker to follow up the slower London town in that classic slow one, fast one, slow one, fast one alternation. And you know what? This first part, we'll get the, you know, that in- instrumentation and the, and the guitar noodling. I do kind of get what he's going for, and Joe English's drumming is just so fantastic here. It's so so thrilling, but it's going to swiftly trail off after this point. It just is. That's not to say that the song is entirely without merit, but you know those moments are far too fleeting, few and far between. Like for example, I really do enjoy that little keyboard line just before the song actually kicks into full gear. I like Linda's backing vocals in this song and how high up in the mix she is. And as a man with a history of a stutter, of course, the stuttering delivery of Cafe on the left bank, which also felt very Billy Joel estimating, uh, touched my heart a lot. The bridge is also pretty fun in how epic it tries to be, but that's me more admiring the effort than the final result. But you know, this is another song, two songs in a row now, where I really do enjoy the lyrics. And the idea of the lyrics, you know, this is a wonderful little trip across the ferry to France and, you know, Paul just bombards you with these pinpoint photorealistic images, which creates a very vivid, very tangible world for you to listen to exist in. I mean, it's actually quite amazing the brevity he uses in the lyrics for this song, because when you go back and read them, you realise that, you know, there aren't that many words at all. In only two or three verses we get the full gamut of Paul's point of view with images of French folk watching Charles de Gaulle's that sort of TV shop which is just so evocative you know you get the English speaking people drinking German beer in France which is a superbly absurd little lyric and then you get the the phrase touching all the girls with your eyes which is classically Paul again as well as staying within the kind of subversively cheeky tone of the album and as we know, you know, from Paul McCartney, the lyrics, this is, you know, based on his recollections of being in France in the early 60s during his Beatlemania phase. And whilst no one can decry him for his ability to paint such a, a you know, a brilliantly detailed picture from memory, memory that is notoriously shoddy at times, what I do take umbrage with, though, is the idea that these lyrics are meant to support a rock tune. 
If anything, I can see these lyrics working far more successfully with something akin to the folksy tone of Don't Let It Bring You Down. But instead, you have a song whereby a strong lyric is being forced into a wholly inappropriate role. Like, I don't know, we've got the, the words this scenic holiday with this pumping rocker, and the result is a confusing mess. And that really is the crux of this song for me. It's a recording that is pulling in two different directions, and it doesn't really want to commit to either one of them. I mean, the same could be said for the whole album, really. If there were more rockers or ballads or more folksy tunes, it would make sense, but there's just a lack of consistency, and this song is a great example of that. On to the song now that George Harrison called his favourite tune from this album. We have I'm Carrying... And only now do I realise that part of the reason that old Georgie Boy probably did like this song is that the word something, uh, aka the title of his big Beatle number, is used so extensively in this song. Speaking of something, the last time I spoke about this song would have been with my good friend Maurice Bozitsky on the London Town episode all those years ago. And I can still remember his frustrations with the lyrical conceit of this song, which was the idea that Paul never goes into detail as to what exactly he's carrying. He felt kind of deflated that the song was building up to, you know, what he was carrying and that it ultimately just was something. And whilst I understand why he would feel that way, I must say that I no longer agree with it, as it's the exact sense of ambiguity that makes this song so effective for me. Like, if Paul outright said that it was a necklace or some chocolates, it would not be as tantalising as the unknown. And, you know, it could also just be underwhelming for anyone else, you know, equally. The idea that it could be anything that Paul is carrying means that whoever is listening to the song can imagine what it is, pretend that Paul has bought it for them, and be really happy. Everyone's a winner. It's actually really clever. Although, the fact that Paul mentions a carnation could also indicate that he's also simply carrying some flowers in this song could just be a more interesting way of him writing about buying flowers for someone. Um, also, the opening verse for this song has got to be one of my favourite McCartney songwriting manipulations, which is cleverer and cleverer the more I think about it. I just love how the lyric goes from one sentence structure to another with only one word, and one slight, slight deviation in timing. So the first part of the line reads, With my carnation hidden by the packages I'm carrying, which works on its own perfectly, but then you have, I'm carrying... Something, which is technically still the same sentence, but now it's got a brand new twist and meaning. And that little pause that Paul gives to indicate a subtle change is so fantastically deft and playful. Like, it's just brilliant writing. It also means that Paul's common trope of over-repetition is avoided completely, allowing for a much more brachiology in the writing. Um, you know, just before this song closes out, people always call this song and the melody a faux yesterday or yesterday light. But in all honesty, I've always had a soft spot for the guitar in this song. It's not an all-time Macca great or anything, but why is that the measure by which we measure all other Macca melodies? Why? Following on, we have a song that we spoke about on the last episode, which is Backwards Traveller, and my god does this song have an effective immediacy to it. You just launch right into that catchy vocal melody and that dirty ass McCartney bass line, it's irresistible. You just caught up in it, and you're ready for a rip-roaring one minute and nine seconds of pure fun. Of course, the version we discussed last time was the quote-unquote extended demo of what we're listening to now. And as I went into then, it really wasn't extended as it was just this song kind of repeated over and over. And listening back now, 
with you, I can confirm that McCartney made the right choice to truncate it the way he did. I mean, Paul is ever the showman, and part of that is to always leave the audience wanting more. And the fact that this song is so short is what's so special about it. And yeah, you are left wanting more of it, because we all want what we can't have. And whilst Paul may not have been able to deliver us a full-length song, I'm still glad he considered it too cool to throw away. Like, you know, he could have said, no, this isn't complete, I'll leave it on the cold cuts cutting room floor. But no, he just added it to the album as a little throwaway burst of energy, and I love it. And with that seamless transition, we move on to the only instrumental of this album, and the first instrumental by Wings for a while, actually, with Cufflink. Now, I have to start this review by saying that it's odd, awfully odd for a poor not to call the song Backwards Traveller slash Cufflink, considering his penchant for two title tracks, but no, these are two separate ones. And from what we know about wildlife, tug-of-war, and even arguably Egypt Station, Paul does enjoy writing these, what he calls, link tracks that exist purely to get us from one part of the album to another via the method of a cute instrumental. And for me, you know, had it not been for children, children, this would have been a link to get us from the bad part of the album to the good part of the album, but more on that song later. Still, though, this is one of the best link tracks, as not only is it the closest to a full-length song being just shy of two minutes, but it's also got a pun in the title, which, as you should know, I'm a complete sucker for. If you haven't gotten it, by the way, maybe because you don't wear suits, but a cufflink is the small metal clasp that keeps the cuffs of a dress shirt together. As far as the instrumentation goes, I will say that this one has grown on me somewhat as the years have gone on. It has the overly synthesized synthetic sound that McCartney was working on during this period on his keyboard, so it makes a lot more sense to me chronologically. And it has that delightfully unique, squelchy, watery sound that only really exists on this song in the entire Wings catalogue. So you can't not call it unique. I mean, it's hardly the best Wings melody ever, and it certainly isn't as good as some of the individual melodies from the first two tracks on this album. I mean, I don't like those songs, but on the whole, I do still enjoy this song more, which really is damning with faint praise. Pressing forth, we have the first of two Denny Lane compositions on this album with Children Children. And right off the bat, I'm going to come clean and say that I have not listened to this song once since my original episode. I wasn't happy listening to it during the you know, research for this episode. I'm not happy listening to it now. Again, this song is joining the ranks of tracks that just prove how weak this opening side of the album truly is. And I have no idea what possessed Paul not to stick it in the middle of side two instead. But, you know, I get that famous group is, goes marvellously into, you know, Deliver Your Children, and so they are a bit of a twofer package. But then just rearrange the whole album so that we have the two of them on side one to give it a bit of balls and heft. But no, we're stuck with this anemic song, and it really drains my enthusiasm for the album as a whole. Now, again, having just done the last Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode where we covered Paul's own similarly-themed song, Fairy Tale, where he turned a bedtime story about fairies and trolls into a song... I gotta say, this song comes off even worse now. And no, I'm not saying Denny stole the idea for this song from Paul or anything, as it's clear. But it's clear that this song was born from Denny's own close proximity to Paul's children. Children. But, you know, as with Mother Nature's Son and Child of Nature, you really should just pick the best one and leave the other one behind. And Fairy Tale is the better of those two. And the, the, you know, this is even worse, considering that there's another children titled song on this album 
though at least that one's not actually about children. But it does seem that Denny was creatively boxed in during this period, and he probably should have focused his energies on figuring out how to perfect his other number from this time, the bluesy Find A Way Somehow, which at least would have been something classically Denny, rather than Denny trying to do Paul but worse. Though the fact that this was for Paul's kids and in a Paul kind of style is the exact reason it probably made onto this album in the first place. And another reason why I suspect that this was written for Paul's children is because Denny references a waterfall and waterfalls was the name of the two bedroom cottage and plot of land that the McCartneys owned near Rye in Sussex. So there was a definite double meaning that they would get. Okay, folks, onto something with a little more weight to it now, with Girlfriend. And first things first, folks, i got to say that whilst no one really believes that Paul was writing this song with a new girlfriend in mind, i got to say that it's far more effective in capturing a side of his life that clearly doesn't exist anymore, or, you know, coming with the character, than with the next song, I Had Enough. I mean, Paul has been happily married for coming up to a decade by this point, and the idea of him writing a narrative about a young boy and his girlfriend is not only really interesting, but also a fun moment for him to step outside of his own shoes for a change. Okay, it's not entirely outside of his character, he still loves a girl, but, you know, he's young and impulsive, and he's even engaging in an affair with this girl. So, not only is this about a girlfriend that Paul should not be having at this point in his life but it's also about an unfaithful relationship which I know some people would probably think would be a problem for Linda but come on everyone she's in the band the whole thing would probably run past her long before it was recorded so yeah calm down but anyway how cool is it that Paul gets to write such an atypical McCartney narrative here it feels almost Beatles-esque in how childish and emotional and carefree of consequence it is and it's easily one of its greatest strengths of course, the main reason Paul was able to step outside of his mindset is because it was conceived as being a potential song for one Michael Jackson. Jackson himself at the time was a young single man ready to mingle, and with that in mind, you know, the song makes a whole lot of sense. Still, it's funny to think that Paul would write a song where Michael is stealing a girl from someone else rather than having a girl simply fall for him. Again, it's more interesting, it's different, as well as being a little cooler and rebellious. In addition to the fact that it's also likely a bit of an in-joke for Paul. It also makes sense that Paul would, again, decide to arrange this song in a quote-unquote modern array of synths, as Jackson had not yet proved he could rock out with a song like Beat It. So you can see that Paul is definitely thinking ahead here, and maybe underestimating what Michael could do. And coming up here, we have the infamous rock solo section of this song. It's, you know, it's literally 10 seconds or so, and it's borderline schizophrenic in how out of nowhere it is. But for me, that's almost the entire charm of it. Like, it just blurts out this incredibly heavy, intense bit of instrumentation. But rather than it being obnoxious, it actually is very entertaining and adds some much-needed oomph to the, to, the, to the song, even though it's completely abandoned after. Seeing that this was written for Michael also, you could never imagine that it was going to be one of his bassiest vocal performances. And so because of that, we are treated to one of my favourite Paul McCartney falsetto vocals, along with here, you can hear it, Linda really going for it as well. It's not actually the only one on this album either. And it's interesting that in 77, 78, he's now deciding to flex his vocal cords in this particular way. 
but not only does it just sound good, as well as creating a suitable style for Jackson's future cover, but it also makes perfect thematic sense in the sense that Paul is inhabiting the character of a younger person who would have a higher-pitched voice. Oh, you don't get enough doo-doo-doo-doos in songs. Not in, not in this time, not, not now. I'm a real sucker for a good doo-doo-doo-doo. You know, going back to the singing here, though, this is another song on this album that really takes advantage of the strong-as-fuck Wings harmony vocals of this period. You know, the three of them here are just so full of joy and love, and they and they totally nail the like teenage melodrama feeling here. Speaking of Jackson, does anyone out there at all prefer the Jackson version than this one? Like, I really don't think he covered this song particularly well at all. Um, you know, I don't want, I don't want to slag him off too, too too much or anything. You know, a lot of that was probably down to Quincy as he had a much tighter grip on him at the time maybe friend of the show the Queen Kitto Tool could you know chime in a bit on this but uh, yeah Paul's version is just infinitely better here oh, oh and that guitar as well there that's, that's just gorgeous girlfriend yeah oh god I probably sounded awful then sorry folks and closing side one, we have a song that I know some of you can't get enough of. This is I've Had Enough. And like so many mid to low tier McCartney tunes, this is just another song that I only really enjoy within the context of listening to the full album. Like, it's, it's great to have on now, following from, from Girlfriend. But when taken on its own, it's a little too trite and uninspiring for me as a listener. Like, I wouldn't go so far as to say I wholly dislike it, but whenever it comes on shuffle, I do start off being quite excited but it quickly runs out of steam for me and it ends up being skipped before it finishes. And for me, I think it's a bit damning that the Elvis tribute rocker on this album, name and address, is much more effective for me than this one. Like, the fact that this is the most rocky song that we get on this album so far is rather damning of this side one lineup. Again, like, of course I adore the, 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 the ballads we've had, Come on, Wings are not advertised as a ballady band, and instead, they're meant to be this rock band. And for a second album in a row now, Paul's kind of found to live up to that moniker. I mean, we all know that Wings is secretly a pop band in rock band's clothing, but this is one of the only times where it truly feels like he's writing this song to set to a set plan, in the sense that it feels like a cynical move to balance out the you know, the overwhelming number of synthy ballads and folksy songs on this album. And I think most people out there see right through that now. You know, this is meant to be the angry Paul McCartney song, but even though it was written nearly half a decade before, it still doesn't sound half as angry as the Press to Play song, Angry. And even that song isn't particularly angry. You know, first of all, his delivery is all off. He's clearly having far too much fun with this one for us to take it seriously. And secondly, the lyrics themselves, despite having all the right intention, are just not as hard or biting enough to feel legitimately angry or venomous at all. I mean, this song should be called I'm Slightly Irritated By You or something, because it really doesn't sound like Paul is leaving Linda at all. And like, obviously that's not going to happen, but even just like, he's not going to hypothetically leave Linda to a song like this. And therefore, you know, he's failed to inhabit the character of another man well at all. 
you know, with like Ball Crisis and SMA coming out from these sessions, we know that Punk was on Paul's mind, and you can see this track as a third and final attempt by Paul to do something aggressive and raucous and just fail because he doesn't have any of the requisite emotional grit to pull it off you know even the the lyrics for this song you know being comparatively hard edge for a Paul McCartney number still centre around a certain domesticity and a home life that Paul really should be trying to distance himself from if he's going to be doing a harder number like this you know it's just forced and unbelievable and it's just not very rock and roll And that brings us to the end of side one, folks. It's now time for us to evaluate what we've just heard. I mean, I know I've given my opinions on this side of the album, but, you know, if you were in 1978, you know, you've just come back from listening to Wings at the Speed of Sound and Wings Over America, would you have been happy with this album so far? Would you be excited to turn over to side two? I doubt all of you would be, and, you know... Let's let let let's hope as we flip our discs over that things will start to improve, and we are going to start off with some real quality content for a change as we move into with a little luck. Yes, folks, this is where things really do start to pick up in terms of quality, and I'm coming to the point whereby, like press to play, I'm coming to the conclusion that. At best, the album is back to front in terms of its sides, or at worst, just completely poorly organised in terms of its track listing. On to the song, though. What isn't there to love here? This has always been and always will be one of my favourite Paul McCartney songs. It's also one of, if not my favourite, single by Wings, and I just love that it did so well, despite not really fitting in with their rock band image. It's very poppy, it's very sugary, very commercial, and it only highlights just how strong of a melody and song it is through and through. Sadly, it only got to number five here in the UK, but it totally deserved its top spot in both the US and Canada in 78. Also, it turns out, and I only found this out just before recording, that it was during whilst this was a number one in the US that Paul actually announced that Lawrence and Steve Holly were being inducted into the band. Like, I don't really think of those two guys as being involved until 79, but no, they are here literally during the London Town era, though they will crop up again later. This is just Paul at his synthy heights, and there's nothing that can stop him. I mean, when you think of synths and Paul, your mind immediately goes to McCartney 2 and those sessions, but here he's mastering his craft a whole two years earlier also while still retaining his casual fan base by making a song that is still immediately identifiable as classic McCartney. We all love it when Paul discovers a newfound love for a new instrument and this song is a prime example of what happens when he finally nails how best to use one to his advantage. Like, it doesn't take a massive amount of imagination to picture this song as a Letterman-style piano tune, but instead... Paul uses his synths and keyboards to create a totally unique atmosphere for this song. Oh, it's just so fucking good! The melody for the song is completely out of this world. It's the emotional core of the album, and it's one of the most effective ones that McCartney's ever written. The whole thing just totally feels hopeful and forward-looking. Like, yeah, there's a bit of London Town melancholy sprinkled in there, but it's nothing that can't be overcome, and that's the point. You know, the mixture of those high-pitched keynotes along with those droney, dirty ones perfectly reflect the optimism in the lyrics. I mean, 
Of course, this is a love song, but it isn't silly, and it doesn't have that frivolous tone you'd expect. And you can just tell a lot of thought went into its construction. Yeah, this is a song about optimism. And is there a more McCartney way of thinking than that? Not really, because all of his songs are about things turning out all right in the end. Though, there is something about this song, both in the subtle maudlin tone to some of the instrumentation, as well as the lyrics, that imply a slightly more mature, introspective look at the theme of optimism. Like, you know, with a little look still implies that even with all the best hard work and intentions, you still need a small amount of fortune and fate to smile upon you for things to go well. And it implies that Everyone that is happy is in some way lucky and that all those people should be thankful for what they have. It's really quite a unique kind of take for Paul and it's much more effective than him just writing another love song. Oh, and now we come to the instrumental part of the song and the solo and how can this just not be considered one of the most objectively sublime moments in pop music history? Like, there's so much heart and soul in this music, and it's impossible not to attach some kind of emotional significance to it. And what's even better about this section for me is that it basically one-ups silly love songs. Here, here, here it is. You know, it introduces not one, but two new melodies during this section. Like, I can't believe how intricate it gets here, and the masterful layering in the production and the subtle synth playing from Paul just gets me every time. He's really going for the heartstrings here. Like, it's just that. Like, oh. <laughs> you know, I've told the story on the pod many a times now, but this song will always be special to me because it was the very first song I heard from this album. But more importantly, it made me cry when I was listening to this part of the song when I got far too stoned during my first year of university. And also... It, it, it's even more special to me because I heard it on the album that my dad gave me when I went to university. So, you know, this song still does make me cry, but for entirely different reasons now. Also, before we finish, like, Paul's vocal here is just incredible. Like, in this really soft, touching, emotive song, he's still able to deliver his signature rock vocal. Like, how cool is that? You know, he's just going for it here. I mean, just going back to the theme of luck, like, I just like the, the, the idea that there's an outside force at play that isn't just a disapproving father figure or naysaying hater, and instead it's just this kind of incorporeal part of life that cannot be controlled. Like, if it was a George Harrison song, it would definitely be attributed to God, but here, Paul offers a much more obscure and vague force. It's just simply luck. On to another low-key favourite of mine from the entire Wings canon, we have Famous Groupies, a.k.a. the song that is totally not about Linda and Jojo Lane. Okay, actually, this is entirely about the two of them. But with Linda, it's like a wink and a nod to the audience, but in regards to Jojo Lane, all of the mean points are probably very intentional. Anyway, this is another Minor Wings classic, and not because it's the best or most unique song ever, but just because it achieves what it sets out to do with a workmanlike efficiency and effortlessness. You know, this song has just always been one that's made me smile. It's knowingly goofy and over the top and never tries to take itself remotely seriously. And that's a mode that Paul has always excelled in. For at his heart, he's always had a knack for cheeky little tracks that are simply 
meant to bring joy to the listener. You know, he's funny. And you know, he's always been a funny guy. Some of you might disagree with me, but whether in person or on his music and whether you get the joke or not, I still appreciate that he's not always trying to present himself as the guy who wrote yesterday all the time. For such a light-hearted track, though, there is still such a strong melody and arrangement here. You have that great scratchy acoustic guitar with the noodling tinny electric, which adds loads of this momentum. Like, you really feel like you are powerless to stop these famous groupies. It just keeps going on and on and on, and like life just keeps going on and on, and they will always be there. And then you get the way the song like comes to a complete stop at the end of each verse before going to a single strum and a really drawn-out opening word, which just gets more fun and tense every time Paul does it. And they... Oh, it's just oh, it's so fun, isn't it? Rather like the title track, though, the verses of this song are broken down into these little mini-vignettes where we learn about the lives of each of the characters. Though, unlike the first one, where the lives are supposed to be realistic and despondent, here we're simply meant to laugh. You know, the titular famous groupers are basically these constant forces throughout the world where they just cause calamity for anyone they come in contact with. And it's great to see how McCartney makes these figures, aka people who in real life probably have only caused him a minor amount of annoyance, to be these absurdly dangerous harbingers of doom. You know, again, it's exaggerated, the message is meant to be jokey, and... I know a lot of people think that this song is meant to be another one of those lyrics where it's just a bunch of rhyming words that sound good with no inherent meaning, but you can tell that there is a kind of semi-serious, not-so-subtle edge to it. I mean, I imagine that Paul had heard a lot of horror stories about famous groupies from other artists that had actually caused a lot of damage over the years, and it's great just, just to see how he interprets it with his own storytelling flair. Like... The famous groupies in this song are akin to witches or demonic harridans. And we're going to move on to the best part of the song, really, which is Paul doing his best posh man voice, the kind of carnival barker or hype man. And this song just gets me excited every time I hear it. You know, it really does build a satisfying anticipation for the conclusion of the song. Like, you don't want it to end, but if it has to end this way, then I can live with it. I'm like, how, in how many songs do you get the phrase proscenium arch? Oh, there's great harmonies again. Oh, the band just sounded fucking fantastic at this period. And with the comical sound of monkeys ringing out, we cut to Denny Lane's second song for this outing being Deliver Your Children. And as I alluded to earlier, this really is a two-for-one deal with the last song, as they just go together so well. And... It's crazy how much momentum we have going on here and how much fun we're having with this side of the album compared to the first. Like, it really does feel like a completely different collection of songs that somehow just ended up on the same piece of vinyl. Now, straight up, this is easily the superior Denny Lane song from this album. And as far as I'm concerned, probably the best song he ever brought to the table during his Wings tenure. In terms of all the Denny songs we have to compare it to, this one just has the most flair, the most energy, and the most effortless execution of the bunch. I didn't mean to do the entire review in 20 seconds there, but it really is easy to explain why I like this song. It's just really fucking good. And it's obvious that the lion's share of his inspiration aboard the fair Carol Wanderlust and El Toro went into this song. Like, Denny really does feel on par with Paul here, and we don't have any of that non-Macca vocal anxiety that we got on Wings at the Speed of Sound. To further illustrate how good this song was, it was 
also the B-side to the I've Had Enough single, which is not only a fantastic get for Denny in terms of his position within the band and financially, but it's also particularly maddening considering the fact that Cook of the House was the B-side to Silly Love Songs and not Time to Hide, which would have made so much more sense and a better opportunity for him to appear on a single. Now, I've mentioned Melody a lot in this episode, but this is a McCartney album first and foremost, and so, of course, all the best songs are going to have killer melodies, and this one's no different. Denny, as I've pointed out a lot, is the blues guy, and to have him just nailing this Mediterranean, almost flamenco type of rhythm... You know, it's just, again, it's so it's so interesting. It's instantly catchy, and the guitar work is just done so effectively, and you can just tell that a boatload of careful craftsmanship went into this to make sure it was done right. Something I also enjoy about this song is how old-school and anachronistic it is. That, like, you know, a lot of the lyrics, and you know, may not exactly fly in 2021, 2022, those kind of sentiments, but... I wouldn't go so far as to call this song outright sexist or anything, just that Denny's doing a very frank and honest expression of a relationship at this time in history, aka 50 years ago. And if you look past that, these might just be Denny's best lyrics, like, flat out. Like, I know a lot of people are kind of so-so about them, outside of the sexism stuff, but it's far more descriptive and cinematic than the average Lane lyric, and the world he builds is just so vivid and real. Also, I'm a fan of incredibly wordy songs sung fast, and it just points to a very strong vocal performance from Denny here, especially when he goes like, you robbed me before, so I'm robbing you back. Like, oh, he just really goes for it. Like, it's really him trying to make a name for himself, and he, and, he, and, he, and he does so. Sadly, though, the one thing that lets this song down somewhat is this lackluster solo here. Like, I know it's not a complicated song, but when Denny, you know, in, in the... Th- trio version of the band is kind of meant to be the the lead guitarist i do kind of expect him to do a little more than just play the same melody here a dealer by the color of his page like he, he really could have done something a little more interesting here but you know the way the song builds towards the close here is just incredibly satisfying and you know, if Denny is going to write a chorus this good, like, I'm glad that he's going to, you know, get every last drop of satisfaction out of it. <laughs> Before we close out, though, another fact I only found out today was that this song was writ- written during the Venus and Mars era of the band, which does mean that Denny certainly peaked in those sessions, not these uh, during that era. But it's always nice to see one of his songs get finished off further down the line for a change rather than just Paul's. Oh, yeah, that was great. On to our next song now, what Paul dubbed a straightforward rocker, its name and address. And whilst I wouldn't call this a bad song, it certainly is a mediocre one by comparison, and I would say that this is the only semi-skippable track on what is an otherwise perfect run of perfect songs. Though, if this is the worst that Side 2 has to offer, then it, it just, again, shows how backloaded this album is with the best material. My love! Ah, oh, Linda's voice is great there, isn't it? So yeah, Macca's career has had a wide number of tributes in its oeuvre, and finally he's gotten around to Elvis Presley. You know, we had Little Richard with I'm Down and Charba CCCP in a few years is one big tribute. But, you know, it makes sense that Paul would get around to one of his biggest influences, the king himself. And of course, at the time of the release, Elvis had not since long passed away, and it was very fitting for this appearance. 
you know what though, just in typical Maca fashion, he is able to do a damn good impression and channel that style of whoever he is tributing with frightful accuracy. I mean, he, he, even just in the way the song is written, like, you know, if it were not for the vocal, you could totally pass this off as a real latter Elvis song. Though, in my own head canon, this song is the sister track to Call Me Back Again. So now, you know, in terms of McCartney contact information, we have a number, a name, and an address. I would say, though, that the idea of this being a tribute to Elvis not long after he died, whilst being a lovely sentiment at the time, it probably hasn't aged that well. And, you know, listen to the album now with all of its very obvious 70s-ness and even early 80s-type soundscapes, it does stick out a little... And maybe, like, this should have been the B-side to Mulligan Tire, and, you know, we could have had a more timeless rocker like Girls' School here instead. This is also Paul on the lead guitar, which is really cool. You know, Paul on lead is actually exceedingly rare in comparison to other instruments, especially during this era. And, you know, it does make sense when you consider that he did play a lot of the lead on Chobber as well. You know, he just loves doing the lead rock and roll stuff, and, and you know, he does do it so well. Going back to the issue of whether this is entirely appropriate for Paul and for the album, though, I kind of can't help but think that, again, this is another example of him sending up punk and the new wave of the late 70s to kind of show the kids of that time what real rock and roll is supposed to sound like. And whilst he does achieve his own objective of, you know, writing this song and doing this song particularly well, I don't think the kids of the day would have been all too impressed. (laughs) Also, at three minutes or so, seven seconds long, this is the shortest track on this side of the album. Um, and this is an album chock-a-block of lengthy-ass songs. And I, can't, I actually can't help but wonder how they actually managed to cram so much music onto a single disc. You know, like, this is a long album. And it sounds great. Like, like, like the fidelity is still perfect. Onto another track now that literally makes me love the overall album. Much more as a whole, we have Don't Let It Bring You Down. And fuck me, do I ever dig this track. It's another unsung hero from this album that never gets enough love in the community, and it's easily one of the best folksy tracks in the McCartney songbook. You know, it, it could be seen as another example of this album being a little all over the place, but fortunately it's done so well that I'm willing to give it a pass. Jimmy's guitar here is also really underrated. Like, it's not him, like, being really aggressive. He's he's being so melodic and reserved here, but yet still bringing an air of badassery. Oh, here we have those Irish tin whistles that are so iconic for me here. Like, you know, we've already had Scottish bagpipes during these sessions, and now whistles from Ireland. It's really cool to see that Paul was not only experimenting with more wind instruments during this period, but also that he's given the wider music tradition here in the UK a little shout-out. For me, though, this first verse with Paul's deep, reserved delivery is easily one of my favourites on the album. There's just something about Paul going low with his voice that's just so alluring for me. It's probably because of how rare he does it. Plus, it also creates this wonderful contrast with the falsetto that he's going to use for the rest of the song. And it, you know, it, it acts as this nice low ebb point for us to get to that really uplifting chorus. Like, you know, and it, it just works as a pun, doesn't it? Bring you down. Thematically, though, this song is very consistent with, with a little look. As again, it's basically about optimism. And I've got to say, it is one of my favourite lyrics because it is 
just could take a charming simplicity. Uh, you know, the message of not being brought down is, is just something that, that that we can all relate to, especially like you know during these woefully depressing COVID times. We probably, we probably do a song like this more so than ever. You know, it, it, it's always resonated with me, and you know, it, it reminds me of like, like when my RE teacher once said, "Don't let the bastards bring you down." And you can see this as being like a, a little more of a PC version of that classic Wings trio harmony vocals there. Oh my god! Literally, the song going up and down. They're, 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 they're really playing with it here. I mean, we do get uh, a lot of acoustic in this as well, as you can hear there. And when you think of Paul and acoustic, you do think of something like I'm Carrying. But here we have the whole band playing acoustic with this electric lead, and it's a very different kind of atmosphere, though it does kind of harken back to something like the campfire type of atmosphere that we got on Band on the Run. Um, in terms of songs that I like to play on guitar myself, though, this is easily the song of the album for me. Like, not only is it deceptively simple to learn, but it's also just so satisfying to be able to hear yourself play the melody as it's so clear and well-defined. And, you know, you can also whistle the other melody. And basically, you've got the whole song laid out for you on a platter, especially if you can't sing, which I, 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 I really can't. Also, uh, as we as we heard earlier, there was that grandiose semi-little solo section where the song kind of gets a little girlfriend-esque, out-of-nowhere epic. You know, it's going to come back a little here as well. But I just love how Paul is able to put, tug at our heartstrings with a song like this and reach these kind of melodramatic, emotional heights without it feeling tacky or anything like that. Uh, and without kind of over shadowing and spoiling the more subtle sections of this song you know oh, just just this melody so strong again jimmy just oh, going crazy as well like this it, it's such an interesting guitar tone and guitar sound especially for wings again like it, it's some very underrated guitar work on this album something else i didn't know as well is that this is another song written in 1975 though not necessarily during the 75 sessions this was written during the Scottish leg of the Wings Over the World tour and uh, the original demo we actually can hear as well I might even put it at the end of this episode um, I'll have to definitely talk about it in a future Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode as well but um, there's another guitar doing the vocal melody that Paul sings here but yeah it's great Ah, oh, okay with that though folks we come on to the main track of this of this album it really divides the fan base which it really shouldn't because it is utterly spectacular this is Morse Moose and The Grey Goose so what you're listening to right now is one of the most genius things on this album Paul has this electric piano it's being fed through a signal processor and it's coming out like a Morse code sound and he's taking that and turning it into the, the main riff for the song like I know that the, the you know the riff came first and the idea for the song kind of came later, but the idea of them being on a ship in these sessions, realizing that this sound sounds like Morse code, and then writing a behemoth nautical wings rocket around it is just so fucking cool. Like we all have a happy accident with Paul because they do seem to fuel his creativity like nothing else, and this is just one of the best examples of that. Of course, when you go back to the original instrumental demo for this song, it is just six minutes of the Morse Moose segment on its own. 
and again, it's it's just so <laughs> slick that the whole thing was basically you know, it was just a crazy jam that was probably never even intended to be a song in the first place, and it ends up being one of the two best songs of the bunch. And on top of this, you get some killer instrumentation. You get those hammered piano chords ringing out in that pure McCartney way with how immense and dramatic they are and setting the scene for that epic finale perfectly. In an article I read, um, Paul apparently uses glissandi on the piano, which basically means continuously sliding up and down between two notes. On top of that, you get probably one of my favourite bass lines. Oh, and one of those little fills there that he does there. That, that was so cool. But yeah, Paul seemingly unleashes his entire funky quota for the song here because this is easily one of the grooviest things he ever put to tape, like along with, say, Silly Love Songs and Good Night Tonight. Like, so many of his best bass lines were from this period. But with that, we come to the second portion of this song, the titular Grey Goose segment. And based on a YouTube video that I saw recently, where Denny tells the story of writing another nautical number for a musical, and the fact that his vocal is much more dominant here, it's safe to say that this is probably the song that, the part of the song that Denny wrote, you know, there's a shared credit on this one. Though, is this Denny singing here? It certainly sounds Denny-esque, or is it Paul lowering his voice again? Email in if you know the answer. But yeah, this section is exactly what the Doctor ordered for a song like this, because as awesome as the Morse Moose section is, it would have gone into the overdone, drawn-out kind of area of music if it, if it had taken up the entire six-and-a-half-minute run like the demo. Instead, with the Grey Goose stuff, we get an entirely new melody, a change of pace, a move from a dark and foreboding tone to something more innocent and charming an interesting shift in the nautical narrative, and even some sweet concertina instrumentation, as we heard there. Although, you know, it, 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 it's basically one big middle eighth rather than a separate song, because that flow is just so smooth as, you know, as we go back into the main part of the song here. Oh, we dive right back into Morse Moose. Also, though, just, just, you know, to say, like, you know, this has been a, quite a folky album, and most folk is kind of like land-based and mountainous and hilly, but to get, you know, some sea shanty stuff, it's just another testament to how broad and wide-reaching in style that Wings was as a band. Uh, another unsung hero of this song is more of that Jimmy McCullough gu gu guitar work, like like like, 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 like those fills, and, and you can definitely hear it buried in the mix, but he is just letting it rip over this whole song. And... Another one I need to shout out for this song is Joe English, who, oh my god, his, his intricate hi-hat work on this song is just incredible. And he managed to, to keep that intense sense of pace and excitement throughout this entire song, and it complements McCartney's bass line effortlessly to make a real killer rhythm section. McCartney's vocal here might also be the best on the album, and like with a little look, it really allows him to get his scream on. I mean, you really couldn't hope for a better vocal to close out, you know, an album out, like, could you? Of course, it wasn't recorded in this way, but it kind of reminds me of Lennon doing his final last hurrah take of Twist and Shout and having that be the album closer. But I suppose a better analogy would be something like 1985, more so the one-hand clapping version. You know, it's just fucking gargantuan. Like, oh, the song is just so epic and basically the, the next 90 seconds is just again another massive close it's so epic and over the top and 
<laughs> Operatic. Whilst this album certainly got off to a rocky start, Paul certainly still manages to leave on a high note here with an all-time great close. Like, it really does rank amongst his entire discography, not just Wings. And it really is a shame that he wasn't able to deliver this kind of level of <laughs> rocking badassery across the entire album. Though, maybe that's the point, you know, the reason this is so good because he has been you know, saving himself for this somewhat. Like, we all talk about Red Rose Speedway as being the, the great example of a Wings album that needed its track listing revamped, but never has it been more clear to me than right now doing this Listen With Sam episode with you right now, folks, that it's certainly London Town that needs that little bit of urgent TLC. Oh, one last time, come on. Help me, are you receiving me? Oh, it's so good. Ah. That little piano roll there. He, he, he's pulling out all the stops now. Every bit of studio trickery in the book. And there we are, folks. We are now at the end of London Town. God, you know I'd love to go into girls' school and Mullock and Tyra as well, just to top things off. But that is not the format. We have gone through London Town together. We are at the end now in 1978. How would we feel overall about Wings as a band at this point? Is this one of their best, one of their worst releases? Did it get better? Did it get worse as it went on? Do you think that side A should be side B and vice versa? What were the highlights? What were the low points? Please let me know at paulmccarneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this album as a whole. Let's get another conversation going. Let's revisit this topic as it were. Are we all looking forward to a possible 2022 release of this in the archive collection? I certainly hope so, as with our Hot Hits episode last time, there are many, many tracks that could certainly be in that collection. Many deserve it. And I know a lot of you want Back to the Egg. There are some of you that want Off the Ground as well. I'd certainly like Off the Ground, but a London Town one, you know, being remastered as well, would certainly be appreciated. And hey, you know... In uh, 2028, when we get the half-speed remastering as well, I know we'll all be getting that as well. But yeah, this has been another episode of Paul or Nothing. This has been Listen With Sam, London Town. I hope you've all enjoyed it, folks. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry, Krishna. Keep listening to Paul. Keep listening to Wings. Play us out, thank you.
Let it go.